0: Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only Curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also, look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. Now, let us launch into our next installment of the epic series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock. Two turntables and a microphone. We are back here in 1996. Here is our Turo Andrade to set us up.
1: So, let's set the stage for 1996. In the last episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series, we delved into the unbelievably underrated year of 1995 and the plethora of great music that that year produced, particularly from the British side of things. In 1996, The pivot point switched back stateside, and there was a series of uncannily brilliant albums released that year that spanned the rock spectrum of punk, metal, indie, and alternative. Most of these albums have not only aged superbly in the 26 years since, but they've proven to be immensely influential to the multiple generations of rock artists and fans that have followed in their wake. An L.A. artist, who was dismissed as a one-hit novelty act, emerged with one of the most dizzyingly eclectic, musically inventive, and greatest albums of all time. Indeed, it proved to be one of the decade's musical demarcation points. Another L.A. band had immense success with their debut album and established themselves as lovable geek rockers. Their second album, while a commercial flop on release, saw its critical standing rise astronomically in the years afterward due to a hardcore base of fans enraptured by its naked and emotional honesty, its off-kilter rhythms, and its punishing raw guitar sound. Enter arguably the first emo punk album. Out of the ashes of the alt-country band Uncle Tupelo, One of the two main singer-songwriters of that group emerges and announces himself as the next great American songwriter and his current band as the next great American band with a good old-fashioned double album classic. The bar is raised for the feminist punk riot girl scene when an ambitious young trio roars out of Olympia, Washington with a milestone album of innovative punk rock sound and fury, the likes of which had never been heard before. A band that had been accused for years of just copying the Seattle grunge sound silence the naysayers and come into their own unique sound with one of the greatest rock albums of the decade. And finally, two of the biggest, most important mega-shows of all time happened in the same month of August and on opposite sides of the Atlantic. The biggest British band of the decade perform at Nebworth Park in Stevenage, UK for two nights to over a quarter of a million people. A week later, the heirs to the Grateful Dead's throne officially stake their claim as the preeminent jam band of their generation, and one of the biggest bands in America by playing to an estimated 80,000 people as part of a two-day event at an Air Force Base in Plattsburgh, New York. The fourth golden age of rock continues in all its splendor as 1996 awes us with all the all-time great albums and the era and generation defining shows it produced. Let's kickstart that time machine.
0: So, Arturo, uh, 1996, grunge was on its last legs, but a whole bunch of stuff was in its gestational uh, period. Uh, Here we are at the tail end of the fourth golden age of rock. Uh, Any thoughts? Yeah,
1: 1996 is a phenomenal year for individual albums. Um, In fact, every, every segment we're talking about in this episode, with the exception of two, is all about individual albums. They're all individual album based. What a great year for individual albums. Not just oh, yeah. in, ro- in rock, I mean, in, in many other genres too.
0: Yeah, and and the reason to do that, especially in 1996, is that basically it was the arrival in earnest of... A number of bands who in the 25, 26 years since have yeah. uh, cemented a really powerful and uh, consistent legacy, but this was effectively the beginning of their star turns in their, right. uh, their status as sort of uh, brilliant Meisters. Uh, also looking forward to a, a segment that we have going on to, to uh very big shows, uh, festivals uh, that yeah. happen with, Happened within the performances. They happen. All of this happened within eight days of one another. So that's going to yeah. be kind of that'll be cool. Yeah. So
1: and, and 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 two bands that couldn't be any couldn't be more different. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, drugs, but you know, that might be a commonality, but (laughs) hey, so long as we're all on drugs, it's, it's, it's all, it's all good. So uh, before we uh, get going with uh, what I believe is now part seven of this amazing series, uh, we need to slip over into our uh, usual alternate skins. And now we are here again, folks in the parallel universe over on the other side of the space-time continuum. Well, it turns out there's actually no such thing as ageism uh, here uh, in the parallel universe. And uh, guys in their 50s still matter and rather bigly and are still put up on uh, that pedestal. Although, as we'll see uh, in this segment, that can be for better and worse uh folks that have been with us since the very very beginning of this podcast uh as in episode 2 remember that we had a bovine trilogy uh and two of the concepts that we talked about are uh old cows still making good milk as in uh veteran artists that don't suck you know that haven't faded and then uh, old cows that need to be put out to pasture which is a nice way of saying they needed to get the uh the gun to the head um so we may be looking at that first, uh, looking at that here, uh, this week. Now, uh, Arturo has chosen a band, uh, and their new album that many of you have probably heard of and have probably heard of a lot, uh, because they're so uh, revered, at least in the rock mags. Uh, so Arturo, uh, talk about this album this band, but tell us w- how uh, they fit into a, uh a parallel universe construct of of getting that love.
1: Sure. Later in this 1996 episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series, uh, we will discuss the band Wilco and their classic double album of that year being there. Uh, 26 years later, in 2022, Wilco have released another double album by the name of Cruel Country, and it's quite possibly the furthest the band has ever delved into country music. Now, like you said, you alluded to, Chris, all of you listening might be wondering, Wilco are a pretty big-name band with a healthy following. Why are they in the parallel universe? Well, in a parallel universe where rock music is still a vital pop-cultural force and the best bands are the biggest bands, Wilco would be an institution on par with the Grateful Dead or at least Neil Young and Crazy Horse. As it is... Right now, in this universe that we live in, Wilco are pretty much a cult band. They always have been a cult band. They still are, and they always will be. The only time Wilco came close to any kind of notoriety or mainstream attention was the controversy surrounding the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot album in 2001 and 2002, but after that, they went back to being a cult band. You... You, won't, you will not find a casual music listener who can name a single Wilco song, much less a Wilco album. And then again, and also, who are Wilco's fan base? Wilco's fan base are music critics and hardcore music geeks like me and Chris. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. That's Wilco's fan base. That's not enough to come anywhere near like arena rock acceptance. OK, so in a parallel universe where the best bands are the biggest bands uh, and rock music were still a thing, Wilco would be in that Grateful Dead, Neil Young, uh, m- maybe even Fish <laughs> uh, category. And that's why they're a parallel universe band. Well said. Yeah. Anyway, I, c- I mentioned the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead comparison is apt because the title track to Cruel Country a gorgeous swaying country rock hymn, is so dead-esque it may as well be an outtake from the classic dead album American Beauty. It's the best song on an album full of country and folk infused nuggets, mostly in disc two, that continue Wilco's current purple patch of mostly acoustic albums that started with 2016's Schmilko continued with 2019's Ode to Joy and culminates on this sprawling double album. Uh, the song Cruel Country is on disc one, and that disc kicks things off with I Am My Mother, a rousing piece of anthemic folk rock with surrealist lyrics that bring to mind the dark imagery of the cult UK singer-songwriter Bill Faye. Um, however, it's disc two where this album comes closest to approaching the status of greatness, and where the country music kicks into overdrive. Uh, Many Worlds starts off as a lush piano ballad with frontman Jeff Tweedy rhapsodizing about how dazing at the sky makes him want to cry. Uh, It's all a bit corny and overly sentimental until all of a sudden, The piano fades away and the band kicks in with a beautiful country twang instrumental, some of the most beautiful guitar playing on any Wilco record uh, in their huge discography. Uh, The country ballad, Please Be Wrong, approaches a Hank Williams level of desperation in its Lovelorn lyric. And the revved up country high stepper, A Lifetime to Find, is the catchiest, hookiest song on the album, a song that would be a huge smash, in our parallel universe's version of country music radio. The album ends with the wistful folk ballad, The Plains," where we find Tweety resigned to being a couch potato, probably due to the pandemic, and enjoying the view of America from his TV screen, declaring, there isn't any point in being free when there's nowhere else you would rather be. Um, This is a very good double album that would have made a spectacular single album, had the band omitted the junk from the middle of disc 1 which has some of the worst songs Tweedy has ever written but hey we have technology right we can make mm-hmm. our own we can make our own playlists and my 13 track version of a single cruel country album would probably be my pick for album of the year
0: chris And uh, just uh, for everybody's education, Arturo has been doing that uh, uh, slicing and dicing concept uh, since the uh, back when we were still burning CDs. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, Arturo used to like remember there was one album that you uh, that you burnt for me one time and that you kind of conveniently left off two songs that you didn't like. (laughs) Uh, And then I discovered them later and realized, hey, wait a second, those might be the two best songs in the album Uh, that happened once or twice. Anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah, this album is really, really good. Uh, like you said, uh, they approach, uh, grateful deadness in terms of their, uh, the vernacular side, you know, the American beauty, uh, working man's dead, uh, aesthetic, uh, they approach that as well as they ever had. Uh, they kind of flirted with that on the, uh, I like it. You don't sky blue sky, uh, 15 years ago. Uh, what I will say about this record is, um, you know, one of the benchmark songs for me as a Wilco fan, and we'll talk about this later in the episode, are the song, is the song Forget the Flowers. Uh, and uh, there are a couple here that actually approach that kind of majesty. Uh, you mentioned one of them, which is a lifetime to find, uh, you know, really solid tune and uh, just a there's a joy, I guess, uh, there. Um Tweety in the last 10 years, he's had a, basically since Schmilko, there's been this series of what I would call quiet records. Yeah. And uh, this is one of those, although it's slightly amped up. And so I think he's in a really good pocket here. Uh, I'm also a huge fan of Country Song Upside Down, Hmm. uh, which is a very close cousin of Sunken Treasure uh, from being there again. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking about that record here in a bit. It's a better song than Sunken Treasure though. Okay, so now we go from a, uh, a cow making really good milk to one that had been making really high-quality milk, very high-quality milk, and was probably the most consistent uh, great rock band in America for over the last 20 years, until now. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the Drive-By Truckers uh, and their album, Welcome to Club 13. Uh, they must have had prints on their mind because it's Welcome, Numeral 2, Club 13. Roman numeral thirteen, really disappointing volley. Uh, This is uh, the fourteenth record uh, from uh, this band. They had been on a real hot streak lately with uh, really politically incendiary uh, records that are uh, that were really focused uh, and had focused rage on the uh, increasingly uh, uh, strong stench of uh, the rot here uh, in America. And you know there have been stretches. I mean, there was a stretch in the mid aughts when uh, Jason Isbell who's become uh, very popular in uh, country and country rock circles was in the band. They, there was a stretch where they probably were the best band in America. Uh, so I guess uh, when you've been on a hot streak, uh, you're bound to have a um, a middling uh, entry. And uh, this is it. Uh, middling might be kind. Uh, this is probably their worst record. Mm, maybe ever, but probably in a long time. It's been over a decade since they had an album this insipid uh, I would say. Yeah. So to talk about it, I mean, basically uh this album, it really is a uh, looking back album, a nostalgia album uh centered on their experiences growing up in uh Patterson Hood's hometown anyway of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Uh Patterson's dad uh, was uh, a member of the famous Muscle, Shoal, Muscle Shoals studio band, uh, uh, David Hood. Uh, but the Muscle Shoals folks that worked with, I think Aretha and the Rolling Stones and uh, other other well-known folks. I think the Almonds. Uh, so it's looking back at that. But but here's here's the thing: uh, nostalgia albums are hard to pull off. Uh, there's a lot of bad ones. You know, I've talked about a really good one uh, several times uh, on this podcast recently, uh, Lucy Thackis' home video. Uh, This one is more close to, there's way more failures in the the nostalgia genre than there are successes, and uh, uh, this is one of them. Uh, Welcome to Club 13. Really, it's kind of commits what I would consider the worst album production sin, which is, one, strong, consistent rhythm and tempo, two crunching, excellently recorded guitars, but three, all of which drive boring, flat songs that don't convey much meaning beyond the singer's own memories. And, you know, hey, Arturo, here's an album that's slow, boring, with no hooks that I actually don't like. (laughs) Uh, So uh, there you go. And uh, so the two best songs on this album, I think, are both written by the number two songwriter, Mike Cooley, who usually only gets... Two songs, an album. And so maybe it's a bad sign that when the two best songs on this record are both from Mike Cooley and not from Patterson Hood, uh, that might be an issue. Uh, So, which is really the saving grace. And we talk about those Cooley songs a little bit. He's got a a petty-esque romp uh, called Maria's Awful Disclosures. And he has a very proto-alt-country anthem called Every Single Storied Flame Out, uh, which proves that, yes, uh, like a lot of these guys, they dug Uncle Tupelo uh, as as young men. And it, it really has, Cooley at his best, has a nimbleness with lyrics, okay? kind of this lyrical flow that, you know, he, he can actually, like, uh, get sentences out of his verses. Like, the verses become sentences, so we have those. Uh, Hood... I don't know. He's got a lot on his mind and he's looking back, but uh, why does it have to sound also dull? I mean, that's the surprising part is yes, they have done looking back records in the past. Uh, Most famously uh, their most storied record. And I think their second best uh, Southern rock opera from about 20 years ago. Now Um, the, the weird part of this record is that the first track on this one, the driver uh, very much resembles and pretty much steals from the beginning of Southern Rock Opera with like a basically a riff with uh Hood in his uh, pronounced Alabama drawl uh giving a narrative of uh of a memory of him growing up and kind of an exp- explanatory thing but this one it's like i don't it's kind of hard to decipher what the hell he's talking about um the uh, the title track Welcome to Club 13. It is a, uh, it's basically a memorial and a tribute to a bar in Muscle Shoals that the band performed at during its uh, seminal or its uh, formative uh, years when they first got together. But like I said, no hook and uh, it just sort of smiles at those uh, good old days and good old times without conveying much more of a point. Uh, That fits into a longstanding tradition of rockers remembering a particular club or venue and song. Uh, Bruce Springsteen has done this about 12 times. (laughs) All of all of those are way, 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 way better than this. So go listen to Glory Days and Mary's Place instead. Uh, So now, you know, I'm sure that Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley have a lot more yet to say, and they'll eventually get back to saying it a lot better. Here's hoping they return to reporting on the sorry state of the U.S., and uh, blasting Donald Trump uh, their last couple records were exhilarating in that regard. In the meantime, uh, we, I guess maybe we do need to start pondering if DBT is now an old cow we need to put out uh, to put down uh, the end Arturo
1: Yeah, give him one more album before, before we decide to put him out to pasture uh, yeah. As far as this album, all you need to know um, I, I read an article uh, in mojo about the background of recording this record. Apparently the band went into went into the studio with a batch of songs just to bash out and just, just put them on tape um, and then work on them later. Well, the band went into the studio with the batch of songs. They bashed them out and they decided, eh, we'll just put them out as is. Well, it turns out they they should have worked on these songs a little more. (laughs) Yeah. No shit. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The band sounds tired that's one thing I got I got a sluggish feel. The band yeah. sounds sluggish and tired.
0: Yeah, and the, does, he, he does sound tired in his vocals. That's a good and, word for it.
1: And 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 the music is recycled because of this whole looking back on the past, writing about yourselves as young men, you know, they did this already when they conflated their youthful, uh their youthful uh, youthful mistake days, when they conflated that with the Leonard Skinnard myth on you know Southern rock opera. And, yeah. and, and and they've touched on this in other albums as well. So yeah, I mean, they're yeah I, the Mike Cooley songs I think aren't are not very good because yes, he's very wordy. I think his songs on this album were a little too wordy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, know? well, I'm, yeah. I I differ than you. I actually like his wordy songs because yeah, uh, this has been a big thing for me lately is that I've uh, like like Nick Lowe was an example of this, but I've been really vibing on artists that that can really just have, they have this nimble way of expressing an entire complete thought Mm -hmm. and the entire complete thought runs through and it ends up being a verse. Uh, you know, like it's not quite the Dylan thing. Springsteen's pretty good at it. Uh, but it's that sort of, it's, it almost like slinks through it. Adam Duritz is very good at it too. So, um, but so that's the reason I like Mike Cooley is because that just appeals to that weird part of my yeah, brain.
1: I actually, I think Cooley, Cooley's finest moment as a songwriter is the 2014 Drive-By Truckers album, English Oce- English Oceans, where yeah. he writes most of the songs and they're all really good. Um, yeah. that's 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 his finest moment as a songwriter, and I don't think sure. it's this record. Oh no, I didn't say it was his finest
0: moment. It's just, they're, they're the two <laughs> yeah. best songs. His finest yeah. moment is "Marry Me" from Decoration Day. Uh, that's I a love great, that right? song. Yeah. yeah, great, great yeah.
1: song. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but this this is this is the uh, this is a trucker's album that should have been worked on more, or yeah. should have been left to bake a little more in the oven.
0: So at its heart, our show captures the kind of windy-bendy, yet somehow organized conversation that you would have heard in a living room in Astoria, Queens back in 2000 and commits it to quote-unquote tape. I now live outside of Houston, and Arturo lives in South Korea, so we are a worldwide affair, which means we truly do try to rock your world. Anyway, on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we do not do hot takes. We do honest takes and we strive for the kind of depth and staying power that makes us just as relevant two years from now as it does today. We like to say we host the podcast made just for you. This belongs to you. Well then, who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We not only celebrate the music wheel of its majesty in full color and at full force. And we'd like to think that there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before along the way. Think we're full of crap? Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Have your own passionate thoughts? Become a member of our invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com curmudgeonrock. And be sure to tell a friend or two or three about the wacky dudes imploring you to listen to Lost and Forgotten albums and complaining about just how bad British rock critics are these days. Really, they they really are that bad. Now, let's return to our regularly scheduled programming. Okay, so let's talk about 1996, a year in which uh, Bill Clinton uh, actually managed to get himself re-elected, Uh, in which there was a bombing during the Olympics. And uh, this thing called a web browser started to gain more and more and more traction. Uh, Coincidentally, Internet Explorer was just put out of its misery uh, this week. Uh, But so that kind of harkens back to 96. Anyway, within all of this, we had the uh, bursting into the limelight of several amazing careers. And we're going to start with probably, the most striking and inventive and sort of more most paradigm shifting record arguably uh, of this of this period uh, from uh, Mr. Beck Hansen who uh, at the time we thought maybe a one hit wonder after 1994's loser nope and yeah. uh, so set us up Art.
1: yeah not much was expected from Beck in June 1996 not by music industry insiders critics or even fans. Uh, When his second major label album, Odalé, came out, following up on what was perceived, like you alluded to, Chris, as the fluky success of 1994's Mellow Gold album. Um, The single and the slacker anthem, Loser, as big of a hit as it was, was seen as mostly a novelty song, and Beck is one in a very long line of the decade's one-hit wonders so far. Oh, how wrong everyone was. No shit. Uh, After an on and off almost two year recording and production period with the Dust Brothers, uh, the Los Angeles based production team famous for their prolific use of sampling and having worked on the Beastie Boys pioneering album, Paul's Boutique back in 1989. What Beck unveiled to the world in the summer of 96 was a revelation of visionary artistic scope and breadth a pushing of boundaries and a questioning of what actually constitutes rock music not seen since the heady days of the german band can in the 1970s and a virtuosic display of melding expert songwriting craftsmanship to that da- to uh, uh deft genre hopping uh, many artists and bands have prided themselves on being stylistically eclectic and diverse within an album. Beck pulled off the rare feat of accomplishing such eclecticism and diversity within individual songs, and uh, many of them at that. Uh, Such shifts in tempo, sound, style, mood, and layered texture would seem jarring and disorienting if Beck's compositions weren't so flawless uh, in their execution, making the transition seem natural while revealing an underrated songwriting classicism that manages to keep the music emotionally grounded in the middle of this genre-spanning chaos. Blues, folk, country, R&B and soul, funk, punk rock, indie rock, psychedelia, hip-hop, Kitschy lounge pop and electronic dance music all dance together in a kaleidoscopic whirlwind the likes of which pop music had arguably never seen before. Uh, The only samplers samplers of this you need are the three singles that received regular airplay on rock radio and MTV. Uh, Where it's at goes deeper into the hip hop uh, that parts of Mellow Gold hinted at and that loser promised while mixing in jazzy saxophone samples and flourishes that would have made a tribe called Quest proud. Uh, The grungy, scuzzy riff of Devil's Haircut is given an exotic counterpoint by the jungle drum and bass rhythms and techno beats that pop in and out of the mix. Uh, The bass line in The New Pollution ranks alongside D-Light's Groove is in the Heart as one of the most killer bass lines of the entire decade. And the song itself is indie pop punk, indie pop funk perfection. Critics salivated over the album when it came out, giving it unanimous praise and instant classic status as a contender for album of the decade. It was even nominated for Grammy for best album the following year. Commercially, it sold over 2 million copies in the US and very well internationally, making it to this day Beck's highest selling album. More importantly, it's the album that established Beck as the musical auteur that he is seen as today, as the genius that continued a brilliant run of albums for the next 12 years, and as the creator of one of the 10 greatest albums of the 1990s, and one of the 200 greatest albums ever made, in my opinion. Uh, Induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame
0: is overdue. Chris? Chris? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd go as far as to say top 200, but certainly top 500. Uh, I'm impressed that you, uh, were able to fit groove is in the heart, uh, <laughs> in, in, into that. That's actually a good call. Uh, yeah. in terms of the kind of thing there, uh, you said the most important thing, which is that this album would not work if the songwriting was not, Yeah. Good. yeah. uh, it, in some ways, otherwise, it would just be a gimmicky record, Right. Uh, as is because of Beck's talent and songwriting. And, you know, there's real emotional depth uh, in surprising places on this record. Uh, I guess you could call it the most danceable folk rock. Uh, album of all time yeah uh it's you know so you put this wonderkin together with those paul's uh, boutique guys uh who you know obviously were just digging in the crate uh uh, geniuses with that turned out to be a pretty good idea so you know you're fitting smart melodies that uh, fit into really smart really tight grooves uh you know even the softer more introspective stuff is really fun i mean for uh, example jackass uh, famously samples van morrison's cover of dylan's it's all over now baby blue uh, so is this, I think this is Beck's most important record. I think he had a streak, uh, a little bit later, uh, that stretches from 2002's sea change all the way through 2008's modern guilt. Uh, somewhere in there, you could say maybe one of those four albums. I think it's four, maybe five, uh, it's is four. four it's is it's his best um
1: I I, I vote for the information from 2006 which I adore
0: yeah me personally I, I like Guero uh, more than it really good too yeah. and modern Guilf, uh, which was produced by Danger Mouse is a really great half of a record uh first half is amazing second half not so much but that was his strongest uh streak uh, and so by then he was a much more mature and much more assured uh, songwriter while at the same time being nearly uh, as experimental. But but undoubtedly, this is his most important record. Um, really amazing accomplishment uh, when you think about it. And and it really was a very, and you made the case too, we're here now smack dab in the middle of the 90s, tail end of the fourth golden age of rock. I can't think of another album that rolls up all of the stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, this is our seventh episode in this series. Yeah. Think of everything that you could roll up and it makes yeah. its way onto this record. It's a real, it's a real kaleidoscope, a real jukebox uh, of yeah. a record, and just, just wonderful. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, speaking of wonderful, um, well, I, I, I have my opinion about this album, but Chris, you'll set us up for this one.
0: Yeah, uh, and so let's keep going. Uh, like she said, you know, this was a really tremendous year for individual albums. Uh, normally, that wouldn't be a thing for us, but these are albums that like made stars. And made legends, and and so now we're going to go from Beck to now talking about Tool and their uh, incredible uh, landmark uh, art metal album *Anima*. Uh, Arturo and I both uh, feel that this is one of the best uh, heavy metal records of all time. Uh, calling it heavy metal actually might be an insult. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's it's in that sort of rare sort of uh, hybrid uh, air. Uh, Of several different hard rock uh, types, Uh, you know, prog rock obviously being one of them. So uh, let us talk about Anima and its legacy. So uh, the appeal is obvious, musically. Relentlessly intense and endlessly inventive, with some of the best drumming you'll ever hear. Uh, Danny Carey, much like Neil Peart, is a human octopus. But you'll discover that what truly makes this album remarkable is when you ask yourself, so what is this album a about and when you listen to this 80 minute masterwork while reading the lyrics as you do that helps you cut through Maynard James Keenan's wonderful yet often decipherable uh, vocals Uh, you know if he's got his mumbly yelps and his unhinged yells reading the lyrics along with it makes a makes a huge difference okay so to answer that question what is Anima about two things really first it talks about our never-ending personal struggles with good versus evil and pain versus pleasure and about how sometimes we need to reach into the dark to enjoy the benefits of the light. Uh, Keenan, uh, in introducing uh, uh, the song H at several times during his uh, tours in 96 and 97, actually explained that as the good verse, you know, the angel and the devil on the shoulders. So that's kind of what he's going for. Uh, and the second theme is the value of a psychedelic experience. <laughs> uh, yep. Album Closer Third Eye reveals the journey that you have just heard was completed via a, uh, a big old acid trip. Uh, there's a clip of a Bill Hicks monologue on uh, the subject of the uh, the wonder of drugs that definitely gives that one away explicitly. Uh, but mainly it's that first theme that makes Anima so indelible, and it's... Uh, Use of strange metaphors and Keenan's barely constrained contempt for, well, you know, people, places, and things uh, that make it so brutally engaging. Uh, the album title indicates one of the fixations the famously introverted and standoffish Keenan circulates in that mind of his, that brilliant mind of his. Um, I researched this, but didn't really have to. Uh, anima, obviously a uh, combination of the Latin word anima or uh, life animation and other English syllables that come from it, and enema, which, yes, is the procedure by which liquid is injected into your rectum to flush out your colon. For Keenan, the rectum is the pathway to eliminating all that evil and infusing all of that good, and both involve an explicit amount of pain. I'm right about this, correct? (laughs) Uh, So thank you, Maynard, uh, for making this actually pretty easy to analyze. So you've got Pounding Album Opener, that is not an uh, accidental use of words, Pounding Album Opener, Stink Fist, uh, (laughs) which is all about him putting his hand up a love interest ass so far, it goes all the way up for the other person to hold that hand. And, oh yeah, uh, Codependence is a pretty strong sub-theme throughout the album too. Uh, And then the amazingly composed, arranged, and sung title track, Anima, which sure sounds like a cry by Keenan for spiritual freedom, turns out to explain just how much he hates Los Angeles, (laughs) which (laughs) is actually kind of disappointing. Uh, See, he needs an enema to get all of that hate and and insufferable junk out of his system, uh, restoring pleasure by inducing pain, in other words. So there's another thing to point out about Keenan here on Anima. Uh, As a lyricist, he oscillates magnificently between the poetic and the sophomoric. Uh, For instance which I think is the streak of the album that uh, really uh, solidifies it as a masterpiece. So you've got H uh, followed by useful idiot, which is basically is a a gradually um, loudening uh, album, uh, vinyl album scratch. Uh, And then into 46 and two Uh, in those songs, he uses the imagery of a serpent and a shadow uh, to represent the devil in a compelling battle to keep love and sanity and his very form uh, intact. And then you get Hooker with a penis, (laughs) which is so goddamn petty. Uh, Basically, the whole song is him talking shit to a fan that pissed him off, uh, telling him to take his pretensions and fake superiority, and yes, stick a finger up his ass in a very phallic fashion.
1: But man, does Uh, that song rock, though.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it fucking rock. It's got one of the better, like you said, it's got one of the better riffs on the record. Uh, there's also the much more clever Die Ehe von Satan, mm-hmm. which is a two minute industrial nugget that serves up a recipe for hash cookies in grumbled German. Uh, seriously, I looked this up. Uh, Google, if you uh, uh, search for the lyrics, they come up. They give you the option of translating the lyrics, and it really is a recipe. Uh, for iced cookies that have a a little bit of Turkish hash in them. So so that's, that's pretty fun. So uh, don't get me wrong though. Uh, This album is just about perfect musically and 26 years later remains a magnificent listen. Now it is an exhausting album to consume in one sitting, but prepare to be rewarded for your commitment to doing so once again. Now, Arturo, uh, can you find anything else in those useful idiot vinyl grooves uh, worth bringing out to the light?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, this is the album where Tool became Tool as Correct. we know them. This is this is Tool like really. <sighs> Undertow is a great record, but this is like more distinctive. This is more original. Oh yeah, this is where the progressive rock influences manifested themselves in the best possible way imaginable yeah and
0: and it's actually disciplined i mean that's the incredible thing right it's it's them delving in this with discipline i mean that's the amazing thing so
1: yeah so so this is this is one of those uh it's a prog metal album to end all prog metal albums i can't think i can't think of a single prog metal record after this one that's anywhere near as good like tool did prog metal so good they just so well they destroyed progressive metal for all other bands to follow.
0: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the one that comes—the <laughs> one that comes closest is arguably Mastodon's *Leviathan*. But yeah, that's, a, that's a very distant second.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a very distant second. And, and to yeah. this day, I still mark this as one of the ten greatest metal albums of all time.
0: Okay, let's keep going on the wonderful review of uh, albums that burst folks into uh, legendary status. Now we're talking about perhaps the first uh, internet. Uh, resurrection album. Yeah,
1: In the fall of 1996, Weezer released Pinkerton, the follow-up album to their self-titled debut from two years previous that sold over 3 million copies and had some huge hits on MTV, rock radio, and even the pop chart. Uh, it was a commercial disaster, Pinkerton, uh, mostly ignored by both radio and MTV and badmouthed by fans who loved the clean, poppy production and radio-friendly songs of their first album. Perhaps more telling, it was mostly panned by music critics. Um, While the raw, edgier, louder, more rhythmically unpredictable sound of of, of Pinkerton earned praise in some circles, it was singer-guitarist Rivers Cuomo's lyrics that drew the most ire. Uh, essentially a song cycle detailing Cuomo's sexual insecurities, frustrations, and neuroses. Um, Pinkerton's lyrics are ugly, angry, self-loathing, emotionally honest glimpses into the troubled soul of a mid-twenties rocker, or a rocker in his mid-twenties dealing with fame and the dark side of his soul that such fame exacerbates.
0: Yeah, it really is some pretty creepy shit it is. In, some, um, in some spots. Most yeah. critics
1: dismissed them as embarrassingly juvenile and diary journal barf.
0: <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> the overall negative reaction resulted in the departure of original bassists and very underrated Cuomo collaborator, Matt Sharp, and the rest of the band, it led to the rest of the band going on hiatus. Who knew back then that throughout the next five years, the album would, as you said, Chris, via the internet, gained a rabid cult following among fans of the then-burgeoning punk offshoot known as Emo Punk. Uh, by 2001, when Weezer came back from their hiatus to release their self-titled third album, otherwise known as The Green Album, their comeback record... Pinkerton had gained status as somewhat of a landmark album in emo punk, with members of bands such as Dashboard Confessional, Jimmy Eat World, At The Drive-In, Saves The Day, and Motion City Soundtrack, all name-checking Pinkerton as a key influence. Slowly but surely, this emo punk push led to a critical reappraisal of the album. Uh, In 2002, readers of Rolling Stone magazine named it the 16th greatest album of all time. Seriously. Uh, What? (laughs) Yeah. Pitchfork named it the 53rd greatest album of the 1990s in 2003. And in 2004, Rolling Stone gave it another review, this time giving it five stars. Uh, In 2016, 20 years after it was released, it finally went platinum in the U.S. So here's the question. Is Pinkerton really that good? I'm here to tell you, yes, it is. Now, I am not really a fan of screechy emo punk in general, and I'm certainly not a fan of the bands I mentioned earlier, except for At The Drive-In, and even then, I can take the latter band only in small doses. Yeah. But with Pinkerton, Weezer accomplished something akin to what Nirvana did within Utero they followed up a hugely successful major label debut with a cathartic blast of unsettling, sometimes even disturbing, raw, ragged, emotionally searing rock and roll that really could not be or can't be denied in its uh, sincerity and authenticity. What critics back in 96 dismissed as lyrically awkward and immature is actually brave, unflinching self-examination that's occasionally delivered with flashes of humor. Uh, Why Bother screams out of the speakers like The Who circa the mid-1960s. Getchu is gloriously dissonant and heavy. El Scorcho rumbles along like a much heavier version of pavement. And Pink Triangle's tale of falling in love with a lesbian could easily be trite and maybe a bit offensive, but actually comes off as endearing and somewhat touching. No, it is not the 16th greatest album of all time, but it's <laughs> it certainly is one of the greatest albums of all time, easily one of the best of the fourth golden age of rock, and, at least in this curmudgeon's opinion, easily Weezer's best record.
0: Chris? Yeah, yeah. Who knew when this album came out that we'd be here a quarter of a century later, looking back at this fourth golden age and saying this is one of the most important releases during that? Because, mm-hmm. like you said, it was an emo punk forerunner. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, all of those bands that you mentioned, they uh, all suck. <laughs> no, I, well, a couple of those. I, I like Saves the Day. I actually kind of like Fallout Boy. Uh, a few of those, but uh, interestingly enough, uh, Rights of Spring and Texas is a reason are much more influential sure. on uh, today's baby emo bands. Uh, yeah. one, of the, one of the best of these bands, by the way, uh, my old editor, Matt Malucci. Hello, Matt. Uh, his son, Dante, 19-year-old kid, his band, Anxious. They're actually very good. Uh, uh, surprisingly great drummer for being a, a, a young kid. Uh, not Dante, but his his drummer is really, really good. Uh, they actually cite "Rights of Spring in Texas as a reason as mm. as their primary influence, and so they go to the they they go to the the heart of the matter, and it, which we, is funny. By,
1: by the way, we covered right the rights of spring album many 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 episodes ago in our vault segment.
0: Yes, 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 we did. Uh, superb, uh, superb record. It was actually on number two on uh, Rolling Stones list of the greatest emo uh, records ever made a while back. Uh, anyway, so to talk about Penkerton, uh, I didn't quite get it. Uh, when it was released, obviously I was a huge fan of the blue album, which is, you know, basically just like perfect, uh, pop, you know, kind of power pop rock. Uh, this one comes out, like you said, much more jagged, much more raw, much weirder. Uh, I immediately back then I loved tired of sex and get you get You's like maybe my favorite Weezer song, maybe their best song. Uh, love it. But then for me, it went like went way downhill at the time. Um, maybe I wasn't ready for it. Uh, about a decade later, is maybe I was more emotionally developed. I mean, hell, I mean, you can vouch for this Arturo when I was 22, I might as well have been 11. Same, uh,
1: thing, same thing with me.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think once I finally caught up to actually being uh, akin to a 22 year old, then I started to get it. Uh, so like I said, there's get you. Uh, but to me, like I said, the the song that really sells the record is, is pink triangle, which uh, is a really catchy very well-written, very well-constructed song and is probably the best lament over uh, losing a girl to lesbianism uh, ever written and uh, that I've heard. It's actually, you know, these days, I mean, I, I guess uh, a lot of guys, you know, sometimes we all have dreams of our wives or or girls, uh, you know. Uh, all of a sudden playing for the other team I've had friends that that's happened to uh and so there is a poignancy when that happens because you know you can't really be that mad (laughs) you know uh I'm just trying to think about it empathetically you can't really be that mad you know know, your wife is deciding to be who she wants to be let's move on to again album after album after album but these are all hugely important records that deserve conversation so Arturo uh, what's on my mind
1: What's on your mind is the band we talked about earlier in our parallel universe, uh, Jeff Tweedy uh, and his band Wilco, their second album, uh, Being There, which is a double album classic where Tweedy announces himself as the next great American songwriter and Wilco is the next great American band. Chris, take it away.
0: Certainly they did. So let's talk about uh, being there and about uh, orthodox rock in 1996. So rock and roll in 1996 was on the verge of becoming um, something else. A couple years later, uh, the biggest arena acts in the country were Jay-Z and DMX. Now, those guys rocked, but they, of course, were not rock. They were they were hip hop and they were they were street hip hop from New York. And even the rock and roll we consumed and loved in 1996 found us really in an evolution. Uh, we've already covered uh, Otale and Pinkerton, which were pretty uh, uh, profound uh, uh, statements and uh, moves forward. And we have a couple more records of that ilk uh, to go in this episode. You know, c- continue to listen here. Anyway, uh, one of our central tenets here at the Curmudgeon Rock Report is that rock at its core will always be rock. And every now and again, we get an album that strips away the cleverness and just blasts out one orthodox, classically rendered American vernacular rooted rock song after another. Wilco's Being There is one of those albums and is one of the best uh, of those albums, uh, you know, know, post 70s, I would say. So in a lot of ways, uh, Being There has been lost uh, within rock and roll's canon. Uh, With the more well known and let's face it, better Yankee Hotel Foxtrot from 2002, 2001 uh, taking that spotlight. Uh, That's too bad because this record is amazing. Uh, It's a double album, but Arturo and I have always contended that you do not really need to listen to the second uh, uh, disc or that second uh, uh, album, uh, which is a little bit more experimental but is not perfect. What Unlike- what it is
1: is it's the outtakes. It sounds like outtakes from disc one. <laughs> yes,
0: well, and then one of them actually is an outtake from uh, from disc one, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But the first record is perfect. Uh, it's just got a bunch of incredibly moving and inspiring stuff, and it is just on from minute one all the way through minute thirty five or thirty six, without creases anywhere. Uh, now, before being there, Tweety was known as one of the two founders and Artur's behind seminal country band Uncle Tupelo. In those Uncle Tupelo days, Tweety's partner, Jay Farrar, was a more developed, confident songwriter. But Tweety not only caught up, but ultimately left the still great Farrar in the proverbial dust. Yeah. Uh, this is Tweety's debut outing as a genius. Though we need to definitely point out right now that he was a genius with a brilliant second hand by his side. The late, great Jay Bennett. Uh, Jay Bennett. Uh, Tweety had the songs and the pathos, but Bennett had the motor, the boogie, and the ability to summon God as a color ranger. Uh, Tweety's music hasn't nearly been as instantly accessible uh, since he fired Bennett 20 years ago. So now, yes, uh, this is marvelous, wonderful, uh, traditional rock steeped in uh, as equally in 50s country as it is in 70s classic rock. Now, I do not usually do this. This is usually Arturo's uh, bread and butter. But let us go track by track uh, through uh, this album one, this disc one, uh, 10 song affair uh, from being there. Uh, I'll give you uh, the song title and then a quip or a description. So let's run through this. Album starts with Misunderstood, a pretty wistful ballad uh, about being an aloof rocker in a dead-end town that hints at the psychedelic experimentation that came full force on future Wilco records. Uh, This is followed by Far, Far Away, which is a jaunty acoustic ditty about longing and distance accompanied by gorgeous harmonica and echoing pedal steel touches. A really, really uh, strong uh, production uh, on that song. Then, it, this is followed by Monday, in which Tweedy and Bennett hold a seance to summon the 1972 spirit of the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Inspiring, rollicking, sing-along stuff. Uh, yes, this even draws on exile on Main Street-style horns and tumbling-dice-style backing vocals. Uh, but this is not a homage. It's taking an idiom and making it their own. Wow. Next, uh, the most uh, well-known song from the record, Out of Sight, Out of Mind. Uh, the riff uh, pretty closely resembles the melody line of the Sesame Street theme song. Uh, I've always been a little bit bothered. <laughs> That's distracting at first. <laughs> but hey, they, but they rock the fuck out of Sesame Street. Yeah. And this, this ain't no kitty mall fair. Uh, stomping anthemic rock at its tightest and its most glorious. Uh, this is followed by uh, what I think is uh, Tweety's best uh, uh, country. Uh, pure country composition. Uh, forget the flowers. Uh, this is a really reverent uh, country number. It's masterful. Uh, acoustic guitar picking, shuffling brush, uh, brushes beat. And this may actually be a humorous view of well, flowers, or a metaphor for both sappy new love and the lingering memories of destroyed uh, of destroyed relationships or destroyed loves. Uh, there really is this. It really does kind of evoke. Uh, let's, like, let's say mid '60s country. Uh, radio rock you know like think yeah. of like uh dolly and porter and this kind of you know um almost not merle but that you know that's sort of like uh kind of mid-tempo ooh, ooh, ah, ah, uh country that was so good uh like 30 years before this uh this is followed by red-eyed blue uh this is another gentle countryish ballad uh this time driving driven by haunting echoing piano uh this is another song about missing people places and or things complete with lamentations about drugs they cannot afford. Hmm. Uh, The outro is just pretty and oddly hopeful following the sentiment of the lyrics. Next um, unbelievably great song. I got you at the end of the century. It's one of my favorite pure rock and roll songs of all time. Catchy as hell rocks balls. It's glorious and optimistic and it wraps its arm around all of the good parts of being in a relationship it's probably they, a good thing they had no idea waited, what awaited us in the next century, but damn, what a great song uh, and a good way to end that century. So that's followed by next, What's the World Got in Store, which is just a marvelously uh, solid, tight, uh, wonderfully sing-alongable, if that's a word, song. Uh, begins with this nice little banjo lick and Tweety's underrated expressive singing voice. Uh, not really known as a great singer, but in his own ways, he could really express emotion, especially uh, romantic uh, longing and uh, uh, melancholy. Uh, I would say that it's the best melody on the album. Uh, beautifully constructed tune about being tired and uncertain, uh, whether in love or in life. All questions and no answers. Uh, really neat song. Uh, number nine uh, is Hotel Arizona. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a, a really kind of a cool. Uh, it's like kind of like the weirdest song on the record in some ways, but really cool. Uh, it's uh, definitely haunted by organ and harpsichord and sung desperately by Tweety, uh, hopping along a bouncy hypnotic rhythm here. Tweety reduces the mysteries and anxieties of life, uh, to the confusion of a suddenly abandoned rock star. Hmm. And then this disc ends with the unbelievably gorgeous, uh, say you miss me, um, It's a perfect rock and roll example of how a well-placed ooh-ooh-ooh, as in
1: ooh-ooh-ooh, can
0: elevate a song into one that penetrates your heart and makes you feel all the feels. Sounds lonely, feels lonely, because Tweedy and Bennett are lonely. Uh, And it is a wonderful and one of the better odes to loneliness of this era. So there you go. Amazing disc with a lot to say. Uh, Listen closely, or you might miss it which is actually challenging because of how majestic this music and these melodies and harmonies are. Uh, let's not totally dismiss the second record, by the way. Uh, highlights there are the haunted opener, Sunken Treasure, uh, a peppy piano take on Out of Sight, uh, Out of Mind. The title of this one reverses the noun. So now it's, it's uh, Out of Mind, Out of Sight. Uh, and it, again, it's very peppy and it's piano driven. And then you've got Kingpin which is a slow, sly pile drive of a sex romp uh, that cribs very much from up on Cripple Creek, but at least it does it well, Uh, you know, with the Clavinet uh, uh, featured prominently. So Tweedy and Bennett would go on to make a couple more records, even better and definitely more cohesive uh, than this one in the sense that they were single albums, not double albums. But for 1996, uh, being there was very special because it proved... That the traditional could still stand alongside the trickier stuff. Uh, this was this train was never leaving the tracks uh, completely. Uh, it was never going to be left uh, completely at the station. Uh, so now. there. Arturo, what's your take on being there?
1: Yeah, I mean, if Disc 1 were a standalone album, uh, we're talking about one of the 10 best albums of the 90s and one of the greatest albums of all time. Yes. Um, as it is, this period of Wilco is is probably my personal favorite because, I mean, yeah, they would do better albums. But this period of Wilco, I would. If, for those of you out there who haven't heard early Wilco, imagine if early 1970s, Rolling Stones and Neil Young got together, had children, and those children became consumed by Big Star and the Replacements.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, oh, and, and and they also had Fleetwood uh, Mac's Gift of Melody.
1: Yeah, and Fleetwood Mac's Gift of Melody. Yeah, um, that's what this—that's what early Wilco um, is all about. Um, what are the the the, the I, I for me the reoccurring lyrical theme of this album is wanting to get out of where you are yes whether whether it is physically or emotionally and uh that there, there's a lot in common between that theme and what oasis on their first album definitely maybe you know and uh, what do early wilco and oasis have in common big freaking melodies big freaking riffs and hum along sing-along songs you indeed know? You know, so anyway, yeah, th- th- this, is, this is a classic, one of the best albums of the fourth golden age of rock. Now, we move on to another of the greatest albums of the 90s uh, in the fourth golden age of rock. And uh, we're going quite different. Three episodes ago in this fourth golden age of rock series, we talked about the feminist punk riot girl scene that launched from Olympia, Washington. Thanks to bands such as Bikini Kill and Bratmobile. Uh, There were two other notably less successful bands from that area at the time, named Heavens to Betsy and Excuse 17. Uh, As those two bands dissolved by the mid 1990s, the singer guitarists from both of those bands, Corin Tucker from Heavens to Betsy and Carrie Brownstein from Excuse 17, Got together to form an exciting new kind of power trio by the name of Slater Kinney. Uh, named after a street in Lacey, Washington, Slater Kinney Road, uh, the band was immediately a game changer in the Riot Girl scene. Heavier, rawer, and more rocking than any of the other bands in the area, they also brought together two aspects that Riot Girl was not accustomed to seeing tight songwriting with melodies and hooks, and accomplished, even ambitious musicianship. Uh, This was apparent with their rough-and-ready, cheaply-produced, self-titled album from 1995. Their second album, 1996's Call the Doctor, raised the bar even higher and to a level that no other band from that Olympia scene could match. Released on a tiny indie label called Chainsaw Records, meant the album didn't really sell much, but a serious word-of-mouth buzz about the band started to permeate throughout the indie rock underground. Uh, It was when notable and mainstream music media outlets like Spin Magazine and The Village Voice was when they started to sing the band's praises that the world was put on notice that a powerful new band with a powerful new sound had transcended the scene they came from and were on their way to becoming one of America's greatest bands. Tellingly, the Village Voice uh, placed the album at a lofty number three, <clears throat> excuse me, in their annual Best of the Year Paz and Jot Poll for 1996. Now, how to describe this seminal album? Well, Chris, we'll let this podcast's favorite music journalist, Robert Christgau, have the honors.
0: Go right uh, ahead, Dr. Dr. Bob.
1: This taken from his book, Chris Gow's Consumer Guide Albums of the 1990s. Which is on my shelf as well. Writing about uh, Slater Kinney's Call the Doctor. Quote, powered by riffs that seem unstoppable, even though they're not very fast. Writing melodies whose irresistibility renders them barely less harsh. Corin Tucker's enormous voice never struggles more inspirationally against the world outside Than when it's facing down the dilemmas of the interpersonal. Dilemmas neither ease nor defined by her gender preferences. Dilemmas as bound up with family as they are with sex.
0: Chris? Yeah, that's a really good description. Uh, You made the the most important point. Uh, This was the first female band that really got uh, sort of universal acceptance by male critics as a great band. Yeah. Sans, Sans, the female designator. Uh, they turned out to be one of the best rock bands, I think in American history. Uh, one of my favorite guitarists of all time. in this is in this band. One of my favorite singers of all time is in this band. And eventually they employed one of my favorite drummers of all time. Uh, we'll talk, we'll talk, we'll talk about her next episode. Yes. (laughs) And uh, that's the amazing thing is that Call the Doctor kind of uh, set forth the ambition and the template, uh, not just about sort of uh, sexual identity, gender politics and about it's It's definitely a very thoughtful and thematic record about female uh, empowerment, uh, their, their whole thing of sort of, you know, turning the, uh, the sexual narrative on uh, dudes heads uh, like I want to be your Joey Ramone. Uh, yeah. Which is one of their best songs and one of the best singles of the entire decade. Uh, uh, that makes uh, that clear. Uh, so, I mean, they're just they're just really special. One of our main sources as we researched this episode and this entire Fourth Golden Age of Rock series, really, was author Mark Yarm's fascinating 2011 book "Everybody Loves Our Town: An Oral History of Grunge." As the book's title suggests. Yarm, in his role as chronicler and interviewer, puts all of what actually happened up there in Seattle during this magnificently strange national outbreak of their musical scene into the mouths and souls of the people who lived it or were associated with it. This includes folks like Sub Pop co-founder Bruce Pavitt, Screaming Trees drummer Barrett Martin, Bikini Kill's Kathleen Hanna, and many, many Many, many more. We strongly recommend this essential volume by Everybody loves Our Town and oral history of Grunge today at a local bookstore or record store.
1: So next, now we go to the live setting and the open air concerts that well definitely one of them defined British rock for and and, and to this day still kind of does. But we're going to talk first about a curious American band that made their their name, their reputation, and their legacy as a live touring band, much like their, uh, their predecessors, the Grateful Dead. Chris, who are they? Fish. And uh, <laughs>
0: interestingly enough, uh, here's like our first segment where we're, we're not talking about an album but yeah. they they did release their best studio album uh, late, <laughs> late in uh, 1996 but yes we're we are talking about uh fish and and their breakout as the touring band of all touring bands and live bands and where they built such a following they got themselves banned from red rocks for 20 uh for about 10 years because <laughs> they had too many fans that kind of tore up the town so <laughs> evidently they needed a place to put them all and they found it and uh, this is, uh, we're going to be talking about the birth and the uh, execution of the Clifford Ball, which is a two-night festival that has, to me, kind of an unfortunate legacy in some ways. Uh, so they attracted 80,000 people. They did six sets, well, official sets, and one amazing uh, middle-of-the-night jam over the span of two days. And so it's a very storied concert and there's a MTV documentary of all things, an MTV documentary, uh, that captures a lot of, uh, the magic there. So let's talk now about fish and the Clifford ball. Uh, so, uh, again, I'm focusing on fish. Now, 1996 was the year where fish became in all capital letters, fish, uh, the paragon yeah. of all things, jammy on the grandest of scales. Uh, Their accomplishments during these 12 months uh, were the culmination of a carefully constructed show-by-show grassroots build of a cult following that mushroomed into a full-fledged community of fans, the likes of which we hadn't really seen since the Grateful Dead accomplished a similar feat back in the 70s. Now, uh, really just kind of an amazing year when you think about it. They began that year headlining the New Orleans Jazz Festival, which is a neat feat. If they had done nothing else, that would have been really notable. Uh, that fall, uh, like I said, they released what uh, I think both of us consider to be their best studio album, Billy yeah. Breeds. We'll be talking about that uh, album in detail later in the year. So uh, that that's a teaser for you. Uh, that they, they Actually, they on that album, they discovered that the studio was actually a thing that could actually make an album better uh, <laughs> for the first time. And then... Finally, that Halloween, uh, they, uh, in concert, covered the entirety of Talking Heads Remain in Light. Uh, Seek out that tape. Uh, It was amazing. And then there was the Clifford Ball uh, held, I believe, August 16th and 17th of 1996. Uh, It's the event that made their explosion into popular consciousness unmistakable. They also proved uh, that a single band not named the dead could pull off a multi-day event of this size in America. It's been done by several bands since. Where was, where did this take place? Clifford ball Chris? Yes. It took place in Plattsburgh, New York, uh, which is the North. Where where is that in relation to Syracuse? (laughs) Okay. Uh, so Plattsburgh, New York is in the upper Northeast corner of the state. It's about four and a half hours, five hours from Syracuse. Uh, it made sense as a location for Fish because it is a hot, it's a skip, jump, and a hop away from Burlington. It's on the Vermont. Ah. It's on the Vermont border. Uh, Burlington is about, I would say, about forty-five minutes away from Plattsburgh, and,
1: and and Vermont is Fish's home base.
0: Yes, Burlington. That's where they went to college. That's where they kind of, you know, cut their initial teeth there in the mid and late eighties. This was also. They started a, uh, what to me is a very unfortunate uh, trend. I hate it actually because of personal memory. Uh, They figured out that a decommissioned military base Mm -hmm. or an airport could be a wonderfully convenient place to hold uh, a festival. And so uh, they did this at similar venues for the next uh, four or five years. Uh, again, I, I hate that they pulled this off, and let me explain that. Uh, again, this is where the use of the decommissioned uh, military base and operational small airport as a venue for summer weekend festivals was birthed. I had the great misfortune of covering two of these goddamn things in back-to-back weeks in 1999. Namely, uh, Fish's updated version of this show at an airport in Fulton, New York, and then the next weekend, Woodstock 99 in Rome, New York, which is uh, 40 miles away from my hometown of Syracuse to the east. Uh, I suffered what I now realize was a second degree sunburn at the first of these events. Uh, Probably shouldn't have even been at Woodstock 99. Lucky I didn't end up in a hospital. And then that next week, I lost the will to keep building a career in real music journalism because Woodstock 99 was just that miserable of an experience. I hate to admit that on the air, but that's true. Uh, Both of those events were frying pan hot concrete slabs filled with drugged out patrons. I mostly wanted to punch in the face. Um, So with that out of the way, (laughs) let's discuss the tremendous artistic and commercial success that was the Clifford Ball. Uh, As mentioned, the band played six consistently awesome sets to an audience of more than 80,000 fans over two days plus a bonus 40-minute jam on a flatbed truck in the middle of the night between days one and two. Now, a 2009 box set uh, was released that features the six official sets. That can be found or bought on the streaming services, and uh, footage and audio of that beautiful, legitimately contemplative flatbed jam can be found on YouTube. Uh, Strangely, uh, that jam was omitted, uh, from the box set. I mean, the box set itself, the six shows take up seven and a half hours, what they couldn't go up to eight hours and 15 minutes. Uh, very strange. So like I said, there's also that, uh, MTV documentary that actually has footage of that jam as well. Uh, and really that documentary, like when you see the, uh, the video and even the bootleg video on YouTube, you really understand, uh, just how organic and magical the fish uh, fan experience was at that peaker ha- had become. Uh, you know, like I said, that MTV documentary, as far as I know, is it's available on DVD. And if you're like Arturo, it's on all the torrent sites. Uh, so, you know, when you grow up, be like Artie and, you know, be a pirate. Arr. So, uh, so again, uh, they, it, the Clifford ball, why was it called the Clifford ball? Uh, it was named after a real guy named Clifford ball who, uh, as it turns out, was an aviation pioneer back in the 20s and a backer of the famously uh, lost pilot Amelia Earhart. It was a cute joke, but was also an apt name for such a gonzo convention challenging band. As a festival, this show was a celebration of celebration. Uh, This looked and felt and sounded like a great time and life-changing experience. The fact that Fish was at its absolute peak as a band helped matters tremendously as well. Set one on day one began with the gnarly riffs and snarls of Chalk Dust Torture uh, from the album A Picture of Nectar. Set three on day two ended with Harpua, which was a popular live staple of the band. That's a very good example of white boy funk done well and also of mid-song stoner stream of conscious narrative. It's ridiculous, it's dopey, and it's entertaining as hell. It makes people smile, and Fish made sure to send all those fans home happy. In between those songs, we got awesome covers of Edgar Winters' Frankenstein, uh, The Beatles' A Day in the Life, which is actually really earnest and really pretty and really well done. Amazing Grace. And uh, maybe the biggest surprise of the entire festival was uh, a a beautiful little three minute cover of David Bowie's life on Mars. Yeah. That is not kitschy. It actually is earnest and intense and just a straightforward reverent take on the song, uh, by, uh, by Trey Anastasio, uh, in his, in his vocals. Uh, the highlight of that weekend though, was that unannounced flatbed, flatbed truck jam. Uh, strangely again, not included in the box set. Uh, this is the closest thing that uh, well-known guitar god Trey Anastasio and bassist Mike Gordon came to embodying the spirits of Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh, whose on jam- whose onstage jams together during the mid nineteen seventies are absolutely <clears throat> legendary. Trey and Mike's disciplined, lovely synergy, which like Garcia's and Lesh's uh, best stuff, hits on some Middle Eastern mystery. Uh, it must have been something to behold for the attending fans on the spiritually heavy back end of their mushroom trips. Can you (laughs) imagine like, you know, kind of fading in and hearing this thing while seeing these guys on, on the trucks? Yeah. Wow. So, uh, the video is ultimately what sells this thing. Uh, now we see the band members perfectly and stoically balanced on the flatbed as it rolls steadily and surely. Yeah, it is kind of amazing. No knees buckle in the entirety of, of this performance. Uh, They're accompanied by policemen on horseback on either side of the truck and uh, to uh, the band's right, I want to say, they are uh, joined by a procession of adoring fans whose faces clearly reveal they know how special this experience was and always would be in their lives. I'm sure here. Uh, 25 years later, some of those folks that attended uh, will still talk about that and still have fond memories. Uh, Anastasio uh, in this jam, he doesn't quite capture Gar- Garcia's guitar tones, uh, but he does come damn close. Uh, we learned years later, by the way, that that was not a stretch to imagine because Anastasio actually did replicate uh, Garcia's guitar tech uh, when he joined the surviving dead members to, to basically play Garcia at an anniversary show. Uh, I believe it was the band's uh, 50th uh, anniversary uh, concert. And so uh, for the next several years after this, uh, this Air Festival thing became a summer tradition for Fish and its legions of fans, albeit under different names. Uh, the most famous of these was the Big Cypress Show in Florida on what I like to call Y2K Day in 1999, New Year's Eve 1999, when we all thought that the clocks were going to fuck us all up. Uh, They didn't. Uh, I have a a friend of mine who actually went to that show, describes it as the best sunset of all, uh, sunrise of all time. Anyway, uh, unlike a lot of other festivals, uh, they did have the good sense to uh, preserve the name of this single event for all eternity. Unfortunately, uh, Fish would never be this great again. Uh, That 1999 festival performance I mentioned there up in Fulton, uh, New York, it sucked. Uh, by then, the band's jams had devolved into bass-driven drivel that aspired to reggae but achieved only boredom and confusion. Uh, this is probably when uh, Anastasio uh, was under the grip of uh, his various drug addictions, and I've, as we know, a year and a half later, they uh, they went on hiatus. But we cannot tell the story of 1996 without covering the phenomenon that was Fish. The Clifford Ball uh, was truly special. Oh, As was Oasis's performances on August 10th and 11th, the week before, at the famed Nebworth Festival in the UK, Um, I just want to make a couple of notes, and then I'll kick it over to you, Arturo, just to set up the Oasis part of this. Uh, So, uh, a double album commemorating uh, these Nebworth performances was released last year. Uh, The band they played the exact same set both nights, and the album selects what the band felt was the better of the two versions of each song. Doesn't matter. These were astonishing performances, and just like you said, absolutely era-defining. That band was so goddamn good in 1996 that even when there was no roof on the place, and they played before a giant field of place, they still blew the fucking roof off the place. Uh, They also made uh, their cultural connection to the Beatles' Crystal Clear with a marvelous romp through I Am the Walrus to close out the set, and throwing in a cheeky interpolation of Octopus's Garden into Night Into night two's set, Uh, whether that was reverent uh, or wiseass doesn't matter. Uh, Just great, Arturo. Take it from here. Give us a thought about fish, and then roll us into Oasis.
1: Well, with fish, um, here's the thing: you really, really cannot talk about the swelling of Fish's fan base, and it wouldn't have been possible without the without the help and the use of the nascent internet at that time um that was a huge fishnet or fish.net whatever it was yeah
0: i remember that yeah that
1: that was the internet played a huge part in the swelling of fish's fan base from being a band playing theaters in 1993 to playing air force bases (laughs) in 96 Mm -hmm. and the middle of the 90s is when the internet took off um another thing is that the fest these giant multi-night single band. Fish was the only band playing in these festivals, (laughs) one band festival. These festivals that Fish put on in 1996 in Plattsburgh, New York, both in 1997 and 1998 uh, in uh, Limestone, Maine, and the one you went to in 1999, they kind of like laid the groundwork for what we now know as the massive annual festivals like Coachella and Bonnaroo.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Without these fish shows, there probably wouldn't be such a thing as Bonnaroo.
1: Yeah. Fish taught these people how to put on Coachella and Bonnaroo. So it starts. So whether you like or dislike those festivals, fish is really responsible for that. Um, Now back to Oasis and their massive two night open door festival. In a small town in England called Nebworth, uh, in what's called Nebworth House, it's basically like a manor and a gigantic fucking field. Mm -hmm. Um, The other generation-defining, era-defining, outdoor two-day concert event, Oasis played to even more people, way more people than Fish did with roughly 135,000 paying customers attending the first night and 145,000 paying customers on the second night. Uh, Those are whopping numbers and even more whopping when you consider that over 2.5 million people applied for tickets, meaning they could have sold out the concert ground of Nebworth House 20 times over.
0: Yeah, basically they could have sold out Manhattan.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. Um, These shows, and they were more than shows, they were more like an event, did a few things. First, they coronated Oasis as by far the biggest British band of the decade and one of the biggest bands in the world. Second, the enormity of the shows being a product of the titanic and nearly unprecedented commercial success the band had at that time They marked Oasis as likely successors to the Beatles on commercial, artistic, and pop cultural levels. Now, this all sounds ludicrous now, but it was not far-fetched at the time.
0: No way. UK (laughs) was in Oasis fever for about two years.
1: And Europe, too. uh, Continental Europe. Um, Third, as pointed out with great insight in the 2003 Britpop documentary, Live Forever, the Nebworth shows served as one big coming-out party for British indie rock in general. Remember, Oasis started out as a ragtag indie band on Creation Records, one of the hippest independent labels of all time. British indie rock started in the aftermath of punk and post-punk in the early 1980s, and the triumph of Oasis was for all intents and purposes the culmination of of UK indie rock's progression of prominence from the Smiths to the Happy Mondays to the Stone Roses to My Bloody Valentine to Teenage Fan Club to Primal Scream to Blur, you know. um, For a generation of fans, there was a sense of, quote-unquote, the good guys having won, if at least for just a brief moment. And that's what these shows did for Oasis.
0: Yeah, no, I I definitely agree and, and and the the visual of Liam Gallagher in this is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, like like one of the nights wearing a white uh turtleneck sweater in late <laughs> August in Britain. Uh yeah. you know with the uh you know with the sort of the the throwback shades. Yeah. Uh, pretty much in the video he he looks like he's half-waisted as it turns out he was full-waisted. Yes. Uh, during these shows, doesn't even remember them, according to reports. Yeah, no, uh, no
1: according to, In, the, in the, the Live Forever documentary, like he's in front of the camera. He's saying he has no recollection at all of either night, which,
0: which, which is amazing because there's just incredible vocal performances. Like I said, it's just 135,000 people in a field outdoors, and they are bashing the fuck out with yeah. total clarity. I mean, yeah. it, it, these are just remarkable performances and great version of "I Am the Walrus." By the way, uh, that, yeah. that's well. I mean, this is like one of the, the funnest uh, encores of all time. First song is "Champagne Supernova" as yeah. part of an encore. I mean, that's yeah. pretty that's pretty audacious, right there. And then yeah. they end with "I Am a Walrus," which I swear is probably just uh, Noel Noel being a wise ass.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, just sort of saying, hey,
0: you know, we're as big as the Beatles. We're going to end with you know, we're going to end with this and we're going to rock the hell out of Eye on the Walrus. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh Noel was not lacking for swagger. You know, he was he was a working class boxer kind of dude. So uh, God bless him. And so there you go. The two best live bands in the world uh, at that time, Fish and Oasis, uh, having very big shows, very important shows with very big legacies. And that is part of the story of 1996 as is the emergence of one of the great underground uh, and or uh, sort of uh, neo-psychedelic bands of the era. This is the sort of the, the breakout and dawn of the Brian Jonestown Massacre. One of your favorite bands, correct, Argo?
1: Yeah, and not lacking for swagger himself, Anton Newcomb. (laughs) Nope. Um, Out of the psychedelicized fog and mist of San Francisco came the Brian Jonestown Massacre and the brilliant, yet honestly quite lunatic, (laughs) main man, Anton Newcomb. If you know about his personal life, the dude's nuts, but I love him. Brilliant artist. Now, rock and roll has always been self-referential. Throughout rock's history, wearing your influences on your sleeves is more often than not a badge of honor and not something to be derided for. See any 1990s pop band or any number of contemporary bands slash artists ranging from Courtney Barnett to The Chats to Ty Siegel to Kurt Vile to The War on Drugs to King Gizzard and The Lizard Wizard. However, it's rare when a band comes along and pilfers the past. In such an effective, effortless way that they not only managed to craft their own unique sound out of it, but they managed to alter the way the listener thinks about or listens to music of the past. That is a very special gift. And Anton Newcomb's Brian Jonestown Massacre flaunted that gift in not one, not two, but three albums released in 1996. Like one music critic once noted, Anton Newcomb does the 1960s better than the 1960s ever did the 1960s. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great Um, line. These these albums are notable for a few reasons. The first of which is that they launched the career of one of America's finest, greatest cult-slash-underground bands. The second of which is that these albums are among the crown jewels in the Brian Jonestown Massacre's rich, dense discography. The third and most important reason is that Jonestown helped launch not only the retro 60s, 1970s garage rock boom that later down the line gave us the white stripes and the strokes in the early noughties, they also launched a whole new subgenre of underground lo-fi garage rock and neo-psychedelia that would take shape and blossom in the 21st century thanks to artists such as My Man, Ty Siegel, The O.C.'s, King Gizzard and The Lizard Wizard and many more. Um, the first one up is called Take It From The Man. After their debut album, 1995's Methodrone, showcased a very late 1980s, early 1990s shoegaze rock sound indebted to My Bloody Valentine and their ilk, with better songwriting, mind you, Uh, the Brian Jonestown Massacre decided to do an about-face and completely revamp their sound. What resulted was a thoroughly modern-for-the-time, 1990s attitude-drenched take on mid-1960s garage rock, particularly of the British variety, but augmented with a lush, melodic quality, and a richness of sound that most of those old-time bands lacked. Uh, Vacuum Boots kicks the album off with a ringing, rousing riff reminiscent of the birds on steroids and soars to the sky with a God-given melody. Oh Lord is a raging rocker written by the band's excellently named bassist Matt Hollywood (laughs) that even has a (laughs) a typically mid-60s instrumental rave-up in the middle. Uh, David Bowie, I Love You Since I Was Six is, as the title suggests, a tribute to the Great Dame. A very and quite, good song. Yep. Yeah, and quite possibly the first of its kind. Lo-fi garage rock, sorry, lo-fi garage glam rock. Sometime years later, Ty Siegel must have been listening. Yep. Um, straight up and down with its languid riff and gorgeous first buildup to its uh, even more gorgeous. Blossoming course was actually used many years later as the theme song to the HBO gangster drama Boardwalk Empire. Uh, I'll venture to I'll venture to say that not even the Rolling Stones in the mid nineteen sixties R and B driven period had an album as good as this. They definitely did not have a quote from the liner notes like Anton Newcomb had in the liner notes to uh, take it from the man where he very cheekily says, quote, I, Anton A. Newcomb, do solemnly swear that the ghost of Brian Jones came to me in the studio and asked me to make this record. P.S., he also asked that I kick the shit out of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards for ripping off his band, his girl, his money, and having him murdered and being glad he's dead and for not being very nice people.
0: oh man oh boy that's brutal
1: anton newcomb had himself had himself a mean evil sense of humor yes he did (laughs) uh next up is the very very cheekily titled their satanic majesty's second request (laughs) a reference to the spaced out psychedelic rolling stones opus of 1967 their satanic majesty's request the latter album was reviewed by yours truly in the, Char- the Charlie Watts Memorial Vault section of one of our episodes many, many episodes ago. I still maintain it's one of the Stones' truly underrated albums. The guess Stone? what? Oh. Yeah. yeah
0: this yeah, album. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Gotcha. Okay.
1: But guess, but guess what? It is not as good as what the Brian Jonestown Massacre accomplished on this spaced out psychedelic opus. There are several classic five-star albums in the BGM's discography, and this is one of them. The album is a swirling orgy of exotic musical arrangements, including sitar, tabla, didgeridoo, viola, glockenspiel, woodwinds, French horn, tuba, electric and acoustic guitar, mellotron, acoustic bass, farfisa organ, Echoplex feedback generator, and as Anton Newcomb says in the album's liner notes, weird fucking Chinese shit. <laughs> none, none of this exotica, none of this would matter if you know the album weren't held down by superb songwriting and heavenly melodies. Donovan said is sublime, sublime psychedelic folk worthy of the song's legendary 1960s namesake only with a dark menace that Donovan himself could never muster. In India U takes classical Indian arrangements and revs it up, all of it with a speed and intensity usually reserved for revved up garage rock. The shifting tempos and beautiful acoustic guitar arrangements that dominate the song Jesus only take a backseat to Newcomb's audacious lyric, quote, I've got the Virgin Mary naked in my bed, and I've got sweet Lord Jesus in my head. Yowza! (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, The track Anenome, Uh, perhaps the the album's best-known song, is not only a song so decadent in its spacey, druggy mid-tempo lurch that it will make you feel high just listening to it, it was also supposedly the late great celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain's favorite song. So there you have it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, finally, the Brian Jonestown Massacre's triptych of 1996 albums ends with the also cheekily titled Thank God for Mental Illness, a very, <laughs> a very lo-fi, mostly acoustic excursion into <laughs> traditional folk, blues, and country music. It was another radical about face stylistic turn for a band already well accustomed to making them and recorded entirely live in the band's home studio for an unbelievable budget of, as Newcomb stated in the liner notes, $17.36.
0: Nice.
1: (laughs) Of course, this being the BJM, even a turn towards straightforward old time music isn't as straightforward as it would seem. There's an eerie spectral quality to Anton Newcomb's vision of American roots music. Not unlike that of Skip Spence's 1969 cult classic of bizarro outsider folk, or also covered in this podcast's vault segment many Hey, hey,
0: this, this is a big vault uh, remembrance uh, yeah. party here.
1: No shit. This is most evident on Ballad of Jim Jones – where Newcomb disturbingly tries to sing from the perspective of the notorious homicidal religious cult leader of the 1970s, Jim Jones. And if you don't know who he is, look him up on Wikipedia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This album really goes off the rails in a brilliant kind of way, of course, with the idiosyncratic 33-minute album-closing suite, Sound of Confusion which is very uncharacteristic of the sound of the record, yet is one of the record's highlights. What begins with an outdoor five-minute recording of a religious maniac preaching fire and brimstone Jesus talk to motorists passing by segues into the beautiful, lilting folk rock ballad Fire Song. This leads into the very British-sounding pop rocker Fuck Me For Fucking You, which wouldn't sound out-of-place On any of the Britpop albums of the time. Nope. Uh, This leads into Spun, a more typically Jonestown-esque piece of psychedelic pop that is one of Newcomb's sweetest, most exquisitely perfect pop songs ever. This leads into Kid's Garden, a tense, slow-burning, menacing piece of alternative rock that's very reminiscent of the Velvet Underground circa 1969. This improbable sweet climaxes with the aching, yearning, shoegazer drone of Wasted. So with three albums, the Brian Jonestown Massacre that they released in 1996, Anton Newcomb pretty much mapped out the parameters within which the band would work for the next 12 years, creating a tapestry of rich sounds, perfectly crafted songs, and eclectic influences that uh, collided in unexpected and Unexpectedly compelling ways. So, Chris, are you thanking God for mental illness?
0: Oh, I thank God for mental illness every day and half for at least twenty-three years, (laughs) twenty-four years. Yay, psychotropics. Uh, Anyway, uh, that was a very uh, good, uh, very uh, thorough uh, coverage of those three albums. Uh, Here's what I would say: Uh, for as much sweep as there is there, and this sort of this mix and match, you know, pick your uh, '60s vibe here. Yeah. Uh, kind of uh, back and forth. Uh, to me, this band stuff—it's all grounded in the same uh, blueprint. It, there is an intertwining of a beat and a mood that are distinctly Anton Newcombs, and it just gives their stuff a hy- hypnotic, magnetic power. Um, and I mean, seriously, it's it's like it's like very tribal, and it's very—it's the kind of thing you get caught up in that in that rhythm or that groove. And just that pocket. And it's just, it's incredible. Uh, there's just a unified uh, musical vision throughout these albums. Yes, Anton Newcomb was kind of a nutball, but he knew what he was doing musically. A um, couple of just general comments about Brian Jonestown Massacre. That was probably, and I haven't done live shows much in the last 15 years. I've done some very small shows. The last good show attended by more than 1,000 people. Uh, term and I went to this together. It was at Terminal 5 in Manhattan. It was like, what, 2008 or 2009? 2008. Uh,
1: 2008.
0: 2008. And to this day, one of the best shows and one of the most entertaining shows I've ever attended. And that was mainly because of the band's tambourine guy, Joel Guyon, who uh, evidently had a, 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 a a strong role to play in uh, making sure that the band and Newcomb kept it shit together enough to actually get good press and to actually sell records. But uh, Guyan is most well known as the guy in the middle of the stage with the tambourine over his head, the coolest looking guy in those mysterious aviator shades and uh, denim jacket outfits, uh, just never breaking character and slapping that uh, tambourine. Uh, when you go to O'Brien Jonestown Massacre, for me, I could not take my eyes off that motherfucker. Uh, it, was, it was just amazing, uh, an amazing experience, amazing visual uh, for that. On this episode,
1: Chris and I analyzed the fantastic year of 1996 and its all-time great albums and era and generation-defining concerts. On the next episode... The fourth golden age of rock will draw to a close and take us to 1997. Radiohead basically reinvent the entire genre of rock music with the progressive and art rock classic OK Computer, one of the most influential and greatest albums of all time. In doing so, did Radiohead effectively kill off rock music by setting the bar too high? The Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers bring techno and electronica into rock radio and the pop mainstream. Sarah McLachlan follows in Perry Farrell's and John Popper's footsteps to create Lilith Fair, an all-female artist touring festival. The Verve released one of the greatest albums and singles of the decade, only to find themselves royally screwed, legally and financially, by the Rolling Stones' former manager. And the year proves to be a phenomenal year for all-time great indie rock albums by the likes of Pavement, Built to Spill, Modest Mouse, Slater Kinney, and Yola Tango. Join us next time as we delve into and celebrate what a great year for rock it was 25 years ago in 1997. Man, we're getting old. Now, speaking of garage rock reverence... This formerly known grunge band injected a little bit of garage rock in their sound and came up with a masterpiece that silenced all their naysayers. Who is this, Chris?
0: Yes, uh, we are talking about Stone Temple Pilots, uh, who in 1996 were the last grunge band standing, which is kind of a funny thing to say because by then they were anything but grunge.
1: Well, Uh, Pearl Jam was still around.
0: Yeah, Pearl Jam was still around, but what I mean is... Uh, And I'll get into it. I mean, basically, this was kind of the uh, uh, grunge as a thing in the mainstream was dying. And even then, Pearl Jam wasn't really much of a grunge band either. But anyway, so let me let me talk about this. Uh, So Tiny Music Songs from the uh, Vatical Gift Shop. Uh, Really uh, lovely title. It's uh, this band's best record and one of the best uh, rock records of the second half of the 1990s for sure. Now, uh, as our faithful listeners will remember, at the end of 2021, we produced an episode called In Defense of Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, We argued then uh, that these guys were the most disrespected band of their era. For a deeper take on the band, please revisit that episode in our catalog. Yes. But we will revisit the tiny music record here. Uh, So uh, the development and evolution of this band uh, between their still really good debut album from 1993, Core, uh, which is most famous for the single plush, which was lazily dismissed at the time as a Pearl Jam knockoff. The evolution from that to the release of this gem was astonishing. Uh, Here they bust out the Bowie glam. And the Bossa Nova Swing in equal doses. It's a really eclectic uh, record in that sense. Uh, They mix perfect, fun-ass three-minute bangers like Big Bang Baby, uh, one of my favorite songs uh, ever, basically. It's just a really fun little banger. And then they've got a lovely power ballad uh, like Lady Picture Show, which I think is the best song they ever wrote. Uh, They also have these really strange, haunting curveballs some of that bossa Nova stuff uh, featuring the best and most earnest singing that Scott Weiland ever committed to the tape. Uh, The album was a grand accomplishment that was met with criminally tepid response, uh, at least from critics. It sold fairly well, but like I said, uh, the response was tepid. Uh, Part of that was a byproduct of what by 1996 had become grunge fatigue. Uh, STP was the closest out of town cousin to Seattle's legendary set of grunge bands however by the middle of 1996 those bands had either disintegrated uh, had been put on permanent hiatus uh, by by heroin addiction (laughs) or had sabotaged themselves with disjointed declarations of odd independence on record we're talking about Pearl Jam there Uh, they released No Code uh, which again was a brilliant record but Definitely disjointed and definitely checking out on the whole uh, we are a, uh, a coherent uh, uh, corporate rock uh, radio band. Uh, anyway, and then another uh, terrific grunge band uh, from Seattle, the Seattle area, Screaming Trees. They unfortunately took so long to make its masterpiece Dust. By the time they finally released it in 96, it bombed spectacularly, which is just criminal. Uh, so the fact that STP was at its strongest and probably most popular point in its first run as a band was significant here in 1996. Tiny Music most certainly was not grunge, as we said. This was, is this was a very eclectic, very well-written, very well-recorded record uh, with Weiland's uh, uh, vocals. I mean, the guy was a vocal chameleon. He, he was a very, very good singer. Uh, tragically, uh, the musical peak of this band was actually the beginning of the end for its union as uh, as a gathering of, of four guys, uh, brought on mostly by Weiland's magic ability to be strung out on drugs and to get caught by the cops for doing it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they managed to release two more albums in this iteration, uh, the very strong uh, number four and the very crappy shangri la Dida." and then they flamed out. Regardless, grunge may have been dead, basically, but STP most assuredly was not. That was a top 1996 story, Arturo.
1: Yeah, I forget bottom half of the 90s. One of the best rock albums of the 90s. Period. Um, it's really the album that legitimized them among like yes. serious music fans, like like us. Like, oh, okay, this isn't uh, these guys are for real. And uh, and this, I, I think the album holds up well. I mean, still yeah, holds very
0: up well, well, very well. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it really does. I'm, 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 I'm yeah. I, I, I'm my older age. I've become a quite, quite a more than apologetic. More of I'm a, more of a forceful Stone Temple Pilots fan.
0: You know, yeah. No, you, I, you, I agree with you. you know, yeah.
1: yeah. Anyway, from one band that we really like and have loved over the years to another one that I really love. Me too. And Continue to love. Um, we now get to one of the most thrillingly original bands of the entire 1990s the one and only Anglo-French band Stereolab. Uh, formed by British guitarist, keyboardist Tim Gane and French singer-guitarist, keyboardist Letitia Sadier, uh, in the early 1990s, Stereolab started life as a band heavily indebted uh, to the 1970s krautrock sounds of German bands such as Can and Noi. Uh, with their cyclical, repetitive riffs and uh, metronomic rhythms, albeit with a spiky indie rock sensibility. They progressed and evolved very, very quickly, though. By the middle of the decade, they had carved out a little piece for themselves in the rock underground with a dazzlingly innovative sound that can only be described as electro, jazzy, funky Psychedelic space age lounge pop. Uh, if I had to attach names to an analogy, the best I can do is this Imagine Caetano Veloso in his 1960s experimental Tropicalia phase joining forces with Burt Bacharach and they, tra- and they transport themselves 100 years into the future, where they in turn join forces with space alien musicians whose only exposure to earth music is radio signal transmissions of Pet Sounds era Beach Boys, Can, and George Clinton's Parliament Funkadelic.
0: Wow, that's a wild uh <laughs> yeah, that that that's wild uh, imagination right there. That
1: that that's a lot to digest and Stereo Labs' Intoxicating Brew reached It's Apotheosis with 1996's Emperor Tomato Ketchup an album of such sonic richness, compositional sophistication, and innovatively layered textures that, at the time, only Beck and arguably Portishead yeah. were playing were playing in the same stratosphere of groundbreaking originality. Um, lyrically, Stereolab were known for their surrealist imagery and their far-left political messaging, mostly sung in French. While wow, that's all cool with me, with music this rich and awe-inspiring, who freaking cares about the lyrics? Nope. Uh, yeah, I can sit I, I can I can sit here and describe individual songs, but I won't. This is an album that needs to be listened to as an album in yeah. its entirety from start to finish, in order for you, all you listeners there, to appreciate the splendor of Stereolab and their unfolding tapestry of retro-futurist, sci-fi, avant-garde, space-pop. Oh, yeah. And for added effect, light one up while listening. Chris? Well, yes,
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, green, green test personified. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think you hit the nail. Ahead. Uh, you don't. It, it's not really worth breaking down it by song by song. Uh, you can look at this as being akin to a classical composition with movements, Yeah, Uh, because it really does have this, uh, this flow uh, to it. And you're right. It it is this sort of, uh, creature of an, of, of a, uh, another uh, world in some other galaxy. Uh, it's, it really is an amazing blend. Uh, Really, I mean, if you think about it, 94 and 95, was were really the watershed years for what you can call EDM rock, especially yeah. the year before you had Tricky's Max and K and Moby's Everything is Wrong, uh, getting a lot of, of coverage. Obviously, the next year you would have uh, Prodigy uh, breaking out, but this album's better than all of those. Uh, I think it's even better than Portishead's Dummy. Not by wow. much, but it yeah. is. Um, I just the, the, there's an aesthetic to it, you know, with the, uh, the female French vocals and the, uh, the mixture, like you said, of just sort of the, uh, the uh, organic uh, acoustical uh, instrumentation combined with all of those to, uh, to quote or to uh, evoke the name of another stereo album, stereo lab album, all those dots and loops. Yeah, uh, you know, just, just a lot of great technical mastery, a lot of, like I said, EDM mastery going on with just really organic, like you said, jazz. I mean, some of the stuff approaches jazz, but even the jazz is like spiked with these, these beautiful organs and drum machine, uh, yeah. touches. And, uh, again, it all, it all sounds, it all sounds like it's coming from the same planet, the same lounge. Uh, with folks, you know, where all the guys wear wide collars and big medallions and all the women are in like, uh, you know, knee, knee high boots and like, you know, uh, hot pink, uh, mini skirts, uh, and and they're all speaking French and they're all speaking French who, but who cares? Like you said, um, this is why God invented marijuana to, uh, uh, to help us all become one community because of albums like this. And, uh, enough said metronomic underground, uh, indeed, uh, Stereo Labs, Emperor Tomato Ketchup. Love that record.
1: All right. Now we will culminate our, our review of 1996 the same way we culminated the last episode. What another great fucking year for amazing one hit wonders on rock radio. Right, Chris? Yeah. yeah you're going you're gonna, you're gonna to give us the roll call.
0: This is going to be a definitely another trip down memory lane. Uh, much like I did on the last episode, I will go through the list of songs. And give you a quip, uh, And this one is actually longer and more interesting than the other. Uh, the last couple of bands that I talk about here will make that apparent. So let us start. Local H, Bound for the Floor. Uh, best song on this entire list. Uh, you probably think it's called Born to be Down, but alas, it has a real actual song title. Uh, two Guys Rocking Hard with a kick, kick, very kick-ass riff and a soulful vibe. For what it's worth, I saw these guys do the best cover of Seven Nation Army I've ever heard uh, at a club show out in Arizona in 2003. Next, Gekita, whoever you are. <laughs> I love that song. Groovy. Ne- ne- neo-hippie pop. <laughs> yes, neo-hippie pop, groovy, catchy, fun as hell, ultra-competent pop song by a couple of guys we never heard from ever again, which really sucks. That's a great song. Uh, you know, just great, great chorus. But I, I love the little riff and the little, the kind of the the, the, the staccato kind of uh, phrasing uh, of, yeah. of the uh, of the verses. Really great song. Anyway, uh, Republica, ready to go. Uh, you probably don't remember it, but when you hear it, it's like, oh yeah, I used to hear that song all the fucking time, like twelve times a day on rock radio. Uh, very, uh, it's echoey female drama vocals at their finest. Set to an infection, high energy, crunchy EDM uh, spike guitar riff and a drum track uh, with an equally infectious chorus. Uh, really good stuff.
1: And you still hear it on sports stadiums to this day. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it was definitely made for football stadiums. Uh, next, Tonic, if you could only see. Ah. Uh, these guys didn't get the memo that grunge was pretty much dead. But as Dying Days Grunge goes, this was a really strong little power ballad. Uh I always like that band. It's a good song. Cake, The Distance, mm. uh, one of the better, more original songs of the era. Incredibly original band uh, from, the, I believe, the Sacramento area in California. Long live the Vibra Slap, which is <laughs> uh, 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 band leader John McCray's secret weapon. Also, this was proof that white boys could borrow the Dr. Dre G-Funk keyboard lines and make them work very well in a right <laughs> context. <laughs> Space Hog, In the Meantime.
1: Ah, forgot them.
0: A song that lives up to its band's name, Latter-day glam punk that still finds its way onto alt-rock radio rotation. I really like that song. Uh, Tracy Bonham, Mother Mother, has not survived the test of time, but is uh, definitely endemic, <clears throat> definitely a testament to the era. Also a testament to the power of feminist growling with conviction with a really nice little opening acoustic guitar riff. Bloodhound Gang, Fire, Water, Uh. Burn, Dumb as Hell, But Fun as Hell, Frat Boy Speaks Sing Rock, Laid back with lyrics that are a joy to recite with two or three beers in you. Okay, next. Fun Loving Criminals, Scooby Snacks, Yeah, Uh, Guys in Vintage Suits Performing Laid Back Groove Rock About Drugs and Crime, Uh, The Pulp Fiction Dialogue Samples Give That Game Up uh, Very Well. Primitive radio gods standing outside a broken phone booth with money in my hand. Terrible plotting song written by a guy and sung by a guy named Christopher O'Connor. So, the, <laughs> so there is there is that. Um, worth mentioning, by the way, that uh, several weeks ago, just recently, New York uh, City uh, in Manhattan removed the final po- uh, payphone. Mm. Uh, in, uh, New York. And so now you, now you've got wireless hotspots, but there are no, uh, more, uh, phone boots in New York city. I saw a great line on that, that now that, uh, phone boots are outside of New York city, whatever is Superman going to do? (laughs) Uh, so anyway, moving on the divine comedy, something for the weekend, electro pop melds with jazz touches and soft cell gayness. Uh, yes, that mix actually worked here. The Cardigans, Love Fool. Very, very popular band in Europe who had this one moment in the spotlight here in the U.S. Kitchy, dreamy pop uh, that sounded like it might as well have been the a, a t- TV theme song. Uh, like if they had made a remake of Bewitched, uh, this probably would have been the, uh, the theme yeah. song. Soul Coughing, Super Bon Bon. Yes, uh, Mike Doty is a bright, funny dude who fronted an awful band that somehow scored a big hit with this sort of funky, but still off awful nugget. Uh, Doty, though, I he's he's a very interesting guy. Good writer. Uh, does a lot of writing on the side. Uh, my favorite line from him, uh, Robert Christgau gets paid to write about his mail. Which I love. <laughs> I love I that line okay Jewel, who will save your soul mm. uh hippie chick from she, Alaska she,
1: she, she had hits though she had more than one hit mm,
0: sort of I mean she had a couple I mean kind of low level oh, she,
1: she who will save your soul and she had that other ballad that was like really a big bigger hit than that one
0: yeah what a couple years later yeah I I, yeah. I know that was her kind of her mainstream as well uh worth mentioning her uh hippie chick from Alaska who scored this massive hit that no one could avoid and she looked primed for a long successful career Too bad she basically flopped as a conventional pop star, you know, packaged pop star. And then her mom stole most of her money. Uh, Poor (laughs) poor girl. Goldfinger, here in your bedroom. Mm. Uh, Forerunners of the mainstream ska pop revival. Catchy but marshmallow fluffy. Baby Bird, you're gorgeous. Really clean lead guitar line and striking moody British-ish vocals. Kind of sounds like the band James, but James never wrote a song this good. The the Refreshments, Banditos. Arizona band scores a quirky hit that sounds like it was made out in the desert. Uh, Roger Klein, the uh, Refreshments uh, band leader, mastered this narrow rock lane for many years. The King of the Hill theme song, uh, that's his band. That's this band, Mm. Refreshments. Okay, and then finally we have two bands that I guess technically are one hit wonders, but they transcended that label greatly in the years Uh that followed. There yeah. is Eels' Cane for the Soul," right, which had its moment in the sun on MTV. Uh, Eels, uh, uh, he's gone on to, you know, have the, just a tremendous uh, uh, string of these spooky, weird but beautiful. Uh, what would you call them? Folk rock albums or these sort of lo-fi uh, indie uh, records.
1: I would uh-huh. I, I, I I would call them alternative pop or something like that. That's what kind of what, what they are. Yeah,
0: what's that guy's name? Mark Everett is that his? Mark
1: Everett. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a I'm a big Eels fan. Yo, yeah, no, I mean, me too. He, I mean, he had tech, He is technically a one hit commercial guy, but his career transcends one hit wonder status.
0: Yeah. And then there was not a surf. Oh who yeah. Had the song popular. Now this is astonishing because this silly, flippant, little funny, phony grunt song gave no hint. That, like, five or six years later, these guys would emerge as clearly one of the best bands in America, capable of writing classic pop tunes. Uh, check out especially 2002's Happy Kid. Uh, really great song. Uh, yeah. Again, for since then, they're, they're still one of the better bands uh, out there uh, now. And, okay, and then as a bonus mention, not a one-hit wonder, but can't really complete a 1996 retrospective without a little mention or a little discussion of a long December by counting crows, which yeah. these days, uh, has actually gained, uh, it's not even ironic status. It's gained uh, a new popularity among, uh, Gen Z and, uh, younger millennial, uh, types. And for good reason, it is a, basically a perfect power ballad, uh, you know steeped you know obviously influenced by the band but a tremendous you know we said that uh, earlier that uh Maynard uh, Keenan really hated uh LA uh, yeah. and s- basically so did uh so did Adam Duritz and so you know this is uh one more night in Hollywood uh out there in the canyon he's very solemn because he has lost his love and uh one of the best songs of of the year um for sure so Had to put that in there. Uh, Oh, and one more that I I just thought of now. Yeah. This is a legendary
1: underground band, and their only hit, The Butthole Surfers with Pepper.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs)
1: yeah. Was that 96? Yeah, Yeah, that was 96. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. The the Butthole Surfers, one hit. Yeah, They're a legendary underground band throughout the 1980s and the early 90s, but this is their one moment where they actually had a commercial hit on the radio.
0: Hey, good for Gibby Haynes, uh, who at <laughs> one point was a roommate in rehab of Kurt Cobain's. Gotta, gotta <laughs> love him. And with that, we have now come to the end of our Windy Bendy revisitation of 1996. And so, yeah. uh, at this point, uh, we always, uh, at this point, we recommend uh, folks uh, join our curmudgeonly community on facebook you can find that at facebook.com slash curmudgeon rock uh, lots of uh, good discussion and sort of interesting stuff that goes on there uh, you can also hit us up with thoughts and uh, random musings at uh, curmudgeon rock at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you so folks we're nearing the end of the fourth golden age of rock we'll be talking about 1997 in two weeks me personally i remember loving albums from Wyckoff, John and the Chemical Brothers that year Not sure we'll be talking about those, but I do suspect you may hear us talk a little bit about a couple of British bands who struck gold and how one of those bands got all that gold snatched from its clutches. Enjoy the beginning of summer. If not, Don Henley's The Boys of Summer, everyone. Take care.